Thank you, Matt and Pam. What a joy it is to worship. I, I pray for you at home that that was a rich time of worship for you, uh, for your family, that you were perhaps touched by one of those songs as I was. What a gift to know that our God is our way maker. And uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to sing that song, thinking of God's blessing over his people from Numbers chapter 6, that God says, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. May he turn his face towards you, uplift his countenance on you, and give you peace. What a gift. We do pray that for you, um, our staff and our, our pastors, our leaders here at this church have been praying for you each and every week while we continue to do so. We miss being with you, deeply miss being with you on Sunday mornings and so many other midweek gatherings. Uh, love seeing these uh, online Zoom or Google chat life groups developing. I know many life groups are utilizing that technology. I just tell you to keep that up. It's, it's better than nothing. It's way better than nothing. We really need each other in these moments, and to be able to connect with each other in those forums is a good thing. If you're a newcomer here to Carney E. Free Church, we welcome you to Carney E. Free Online. My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's truly a delight to be with you in your home. Thanks for tuning in with us today. Uh, it's great to be with you, and we do pray for your family's safety and perseverance and uh, even growth during this season that we're uh, not together as much as we would like to be, but we hope to be so soon. You know, one of the things uh, that's come out of this season has been some really good internet humor. Have you noticed that? Have you got some different internet humor related to uh, stay-at-home orders and uh, the consequences of the grocery aisles being emptied. I figured I'd share with you just a few that I've received. Uh, there's one that a friend of mine sent me, and you'll, you'll see it before you. It says, back in my day, there was so much toilet paper that people used to literally string it up on the trees of their enemies. It was a, a good day. <laughs> My kids asked me about that, and they said, well, Dad, did, did you do that? That led to an awkward conversation. <laughs> Another one that I received played on the old uh, 1990s Bon Jovi song, Living on a Prayer. And if you remember the song, it goes, oh, oh, we're halfway there. I won't sing it for you. I'll do you the benefit not to sing it for you. Oh, oh, we're halfway there. Oh, oh, living on a prayer. Well, uh, the meme changes it, and it's a roll of toilet paper. Says, "Oh, we're halfway there. Oh, living on a square <laughs> that we have in front of us right now." And it goes like this: It's a little note from God. No movies, no concerts, no sports, no restaurants, no social contacts. Limited workload. Now that I've got your attention, can we talk? Signed, God. That's kind of where we are right now. And that's really kind of the point of this message series that we've been in together, Dangerous Prayers. Can we talk? God's got our attention now. 
And now that he does, perhaps we would carve out a little bit more of the time that we have been given, and perhaps it could be a little bit of a gift for us that we would grow in our ability to connect with God through the wonderful instrument of prayer. You know, the point of prayer is not so much that God would come in and change our circumstances. Sometimes he does do that, and we're grateful well when he does, but the greater point of prayer and the one that we've been emphasizing throughout the series is oftentimes God comes in and he changes us. Because in the presence of God is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And sadly, some of us have gotten into the habit in our prayer lives of thinking of God kind of like a cosmic vending machine. That we insert the prayer coins and we expect out will come these religious goods that bring blessings to our lives. And that we call on God in prayer and out comes thin healthy bodies or fat wallets or other goodies that we're really asking for. But, but what we're learning in this series is that we pray to God and God is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end itself. Jesus upends our idea of a cosmic vending machine portrait of God and we learn from Jesus as we go to him in prayer he's not a means to an end he's the end like he's the meal we don't get some goods we get the meal of being with Jesus and enjoying his presence and so perhaps if God right now has got you in this place that he has your attention because he's cleared your calendar Perhaps now is the time to really reinforce uh, your prayer times with God. Let me just take a moment to review where we've been in this series and talk about the prayers that we have prayed with the possibility that maybe these would become some of your prayers in these weeks to come as it looks like we'll have a number of additional weeks where we still have a lot of time on our hands. Uh, the first prayer that we addressed in this series was, God, would you please make me aware of your presence? And would you give me compassion for other people? And this came off of an episode in Jesus' life, one of many, where he goes into solitude with God and he just spends time dwelling with God. And from that we said, God, would you help me to go into solitude with you? Make me more aware of your presence. And then from that, grant me compassion toward others that you are leading me toward. The next prayer that we prayed was called the Disciples' Prayer, or as we oftentimes call it, the Lord's Prayer. And it's um, the Lord's Prayer that we pray frequently as families, but we specifically emphasize that Sunday, that haunting line at the end of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus invites his disciples to pray, uh, Father, forgive me my trespasses, as I forgive those who have trust, trespassed against me. God, would you please help me to forgive others their sins, as I remember that you have forgiven me so much. Help me to forgive. And I'm not sure if there's any better time than right now, again, with so much time on our hands, to get right with other people, to seek forgiveness with other people. Then we looked at the prayer of Augur in uh, Proverbs chapter 30, which was just a prayer of contentment. God, would you give me contentment in the place that I'm in right now? And these prayers fit so much to our situation uh, Agra prayed, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. 
And from there we looked at the prayer of David in which he said, Lord, would you please have mercy on me? It's true what you said about me. I have missed the mark more times than I care to count. I am a sinner. Would you please have mercy on me? And that basic posture of confession to God is such a profound one for us. From that, we looked at the prayer of Korah and his sons from Psalm 46, where we said, Harpu, God, you are my refuge and my present help. Would you be my refuge? Would you help me to relax in this time? And then we looked at Jesus' prayer that he says from the Garden of Gethsemane, God, even suffering, not my will, but your, yours be done. I want your will to be done in my life, even if that means the cup of suffering into my world. May your will be done even in me. And then finally, last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about the prayer of that beggar, that thief on the cross, who simply said, God, would you remember me? Jesus, would you remember me in paradise? Would you please remember me, God? when uh, you get to your kingdom, would you remember me in heaven? And this, of course, is a great prayer for us, that we would fix our eyes once again on heaven and ask God to remember us in paradise, and of course he will, but for us to fix our eyes on heaven in these days is wise. So that's just a bit of review. That's where we've been over these past several weeks. From today and then for the next several weeks, we're going to continue in this series, but we're going to modify it just a little bit, and we're going to look at a number of passages where we see dangerous prayers for disturbing times, like the one that we're living in right now. What are some prayers of God's people in the scriptures that provide these dangerous and powerful prayers for the disturbing times that we're living in right now, such that God might use these disturbing times for our good? Friends, I want to beg of you at home to believe this today. Suffering can be used for good. Do not waste your suffering. Use the suffering time that you might be in today for good. It's part of God's calisthenics for our weight training that we would become the people of character that he wants us to become. We have this choice either to redeem this time or not. And we very well can redeem this disturbing time that we are in, and God would use it in a glorious way to change us from the inside out, perhaps for the rest of our lives. God be praised if he does. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to look at an extraordinary prayer at the end of this passage, Acts 6 and Acts 7, from a very unique man by the name of Stephen. And if you're turning your Bibles with me right now, as I hope you're doing at home, you can go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then the book of Acts. If you're opening it up on your phones or your device, that's all fine too. Um, it goes from Acts then to Romans and Corinthians. If you got to those books, you went a little bit too far. But Acts chapter 6 is where we'll start. If you're still not there, Thank God for the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible as well. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and 7 
and uh, this man, Stephen. I want, to, I want to introduce you to, to this man, uh, Stephen, who is described as a man as being really full of faith. And he's kind of a unique guy in that he was selected by uh, these early disciples. You have right after Jesus' death and resurrection, you still have most of the disciples are living a couple years after that, and they're now organizing the very first church to be most effective. And part of their organizational structure included a deacon team. And so the disciples handpicked some deacons based on their character, based on the fact that they were full of faith, that they were people of prayer, that they were gracious people, people who loved really, really well. And the disciples selected these deacons to help them out with the growing ministry they had to the earliest family of God as the Christian church was beginning to get its start. And the word deacon just means minister. That's all it means, minister, or even servant. And much in the same way, we have deacons and deaconesses at our church, Carney E. Free, and they are characterized by grace and faith and prayer and generosity. And that's what the earliest deacons were to be characterized by as well. And so they choose Stephen, and this is what is said of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. They, the disciples, chose Stephen, a man, listen to this description, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Man, I would love that to be said of me someday. That Adrian is a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Here's a man they chose and they selected him because he was faithful in prayer. Like he really prayed for the people. He really cared for people. And then he was also full of the Holy Spirit. And as he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was really courageous. So being full of faith and really caring for people and being a man of prayer, he did what the earliest deacons did, which was caring for the widows and the orphans and the others in distress and minding to the daily distribution of bread to them such that they would not go hungry. That's one of the things the early deacons did. That's one of the things our deacon and deaconess team does here at this church. But also he's full of the Holy Spirit, and so he has this great courage. And part of Stephen's great courage is this. He is willing to continue to speak boldly about the resurrected Christ. He continues to speak boldly about the resurrected Christ no matter what opposition he might experience from other people. And there's this Jewish ruling class that, that is developed and they see that Stephen keeps on speaking and the other apostles, Peter and others, keep on speaking and they want none of it. And so they seek to shut Stephen up. And in the process of doing so, as he's preaching about the resurrected Christ, they're seeking to shut him up. And so what they do is they arrest him. And as they arrest him, they drum up some false charges about Stephen. And they drum up some false witnesses about him. And their plan is to use him as a scapegoat to pin him down and hopefully uh, dispense of these new followers of the way of Jesus Christ. And so you look at verse 15, and in verse 15, they've arrested him. 
and he's before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is like the ruling class. They're even, if you would call them, the supreme court of the day over political and religious matters. And they get to act as judge and jury for the Jewish people underneath the authority of the Roman Empire. And they can exact a sentence on Stephen's life. They're the supreme court over the Jewish people. And it says, verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel because he had been with God. When has that ever happened before in the scriptures? Can you think of another time that someone was with God and their face was like the face of of an angel? Happened with Moses, right? Moses went up the mountain of Sinai and after being with God, he comes down and his face was aglow. His face was like an angel. Here's my question. Would you want to listen to a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, whose face was like an angel because he had been with God? Would you want to listen to a man like that in this moment? I'd want to listen to him. And so he's going to speak to the Sanhedrin and to us And as he speaks to them, he's going to kind of knock down some of the pillars of the culture of that day as he seeks to point these people toward Jesus. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 7 for the remainder of our time. We can't get through Acts chapter 7 today. It's a really long chapter, but I encourage you with your families to read it later on today. And it's in this chapter that he really identifies, well, what are the pillars basically of a three-legged stool, if you will. I'm just going to grab a stool. What are the pillars that the Jewish culture of the day was sitting on and the Sanhedrin and other Jews were trusting in in that day? And I have a stool here, borrowing Matt's stool. And you see, obviously, it's a four-legged stool. I apologize. We, like you at the church, are seeking to save money on unnecessary expenses. So you just have to use your imagination with me. It's a, it's a three-legged stool up here. And what Stephen's going to do is identify these different legs, these different pillars of the stool that Judaism was standing on in that day, and he's going to, sacred, he's going to slaughter their sacred cows one by one. And um, basically well, what's happening is the Jews of the day are saying, I, I, I trust in these things. These are the things that I put my trust in. And Stephen's going to say, in the process of trusting in these things, you've missed the giver of these things. You've missed the giver for the gifts. And the first one, though, that he's going to identify and he's going to gently attack is their trust in, I'm just going to put two up here. First, their trust in the land, and then second, their trust in the law. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. You'll see it up on the screen or in your Bibles. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, please listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. And see, the Jews of the day well, were saying, look at me, we have the land. 
We have this precious blessing of the land of Israel, and because we have the land of Israel, we are particularly blessed by God. This is a demonstration of God's blessing on us, and this is like our badge of honor that God has placed his blessing on us, that we have this land. And to that, Stephen says, but God put his blessing on Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Was Mesopotamia part of Israel? No, of course not. And then verse 5, he goes on, God gave him no inheritance in Israel, not even enough ground to set his foot on. So no, he didn't have that even. God blessed Abraham, but God never got, God never gave to Abraham a piece of this land, and yet Abraham was blessed. And so in this, Stephen is kind of cutting down, reminding the people of God that Abraham was blessed, but he didn't have the land. So you may have this blessing, but are you worshiping the blessing that you've been given, or are you worshiping the giver of the blessings? Land is a blessing, but it doesn't confer on you Jewish people special status with God. Uh, at this point in the story, again, we can't go through it all, but um, Stephen recounts for uh, the people, for the Sanhedrin, these large swaths of Jewish history. And he's going through them one by one. And this is one of the most beautiful things about Jewish culture is they had this oral culture. And Stephen would have been educated in this oral culture such that he's memorized huge portions of the Hebrew scriptures. And he's taken the Sanhedrin through what God has done for the Jewish people in episode after episode after episode for the next 40, 40 verses. And he's doing it all from memory. It's a really good reminder to us, again, to redeem the time. And part of what we've been doing as a church family over this year is doing this chronological march through the Bible, at least a couple chapters at a time. And right now we're in these very chapters that Stephen is talking about in the book of Exodus as he is uh, taking the Sanhedrin through the history of the Old Testament to the time of Moses. And when he gets to the time of Moses, he says, your people, our people, have gotten the law... And you've taken the law as this greatest symbol of God's blessing to you, but once again, you've missed the fact that God is the one who has given this blessing of the law, and so you've put your trust in the law as opposed to the giver itself. Look at verse 38 up on the screen. Uh, he says this, uh, He, that is Moses, was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received, this is Moses received, living words to pass on to us. Living words of the law that Moses received. And we received these living words of the law. But unfortunately, the Jews of the day treated these words of the law as these badges of honor that didn't really matter if they obeyed them that much. They became part of this legalistic framework and they were devoid of the heart behind the law. And so Stephen goes on in the very next verse, verse 39, he says, but our ancestors, listen to this, 
refused to obey Moses, refused to obey God. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, they turned back toward Egypt. They received the legal framework of the law, but they didn't obey it. They said, okay, okay, we got this covered now. God has blessed us, and we're good. And unfortunately, what was happening for the Jewish people in that day was they kind of became like the stopper for the law. That the words of the scripture stopped with them instead of becoming this funnel for the law, that it would become a blessing for all other people around them. What God intends for us is not that we would ever become a stopper for his love, but rather we would be more like a, a plumbing system for a city's water system, that it goes through us and then the water goes to other homes as well, and such it is the warmth of God's love coming to us, the scriptures coming to us, and then through us toward others. But what the leading Jews of the day instead were doing was, okay, we got this. And look at how much knowledge we have. And they became like some people that I've met over the years, and maybe like some people that you've met over the years who have all kinds of knowledge, but they have no love. And it's like their big, big knowledge puffed them up, but their love wasn't building anyone up. And they were saying, we're special because we have the law. And we have that special gift from God and other people don't. But we're not special because we have the scriptures, are we? God's special because he gave us the scriptures. And so Stephen says to the Hebrew people, says to the Jewish people, don't trust in the law, that's not enough. And then finally he says to them, the third leg of the stool is the temple. And you've put your trust in the temple and you believe, but because you have this temple where God dwells, that you have a special blessing from God that other people don't have access to do, don't have access to, and he's particularly present with you in the temple, and you want to say that he won't be present with others in spite of the fact that Jesus said, I'll tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it again because I'll come and dwell with you by faith. And he says here in verse 44, again, recounting the other history, it says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. So good. That though they had God with them in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and, and good, that's wonderful, a great blessing. Then verse 47, it was Solomon who built a house for him. And amen, thanks be to God for the temple as well, Stephen would say. But then he pauses and he says to them, but like, do you really believe? Do you really believe that, that you can keep God in a box? Do you really believe that you can contain God because you have a temple? Do you actually believe that you could house the fullness of God? He's uncontainable. And quoting the prophet Isaiah, Stephen says in verses 49 and 50, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, 
or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Like, have you looked up at the sky and seen all the stars? There's 250 billion of them in our Milky Way. And God made them all. Do you really think that you can contain him? He's uncontainable. So you may have these gifts, but sadly he's saying you have mistaken the gifts for the giver of the gifts. And so for the first 48 verses of this chapter, what Stephen is in essence doing is taking these pillars of Jewish culture that they're holding on to and they're putting their trust in that and he's kicking them over. Saying, don't trust in those. That's not enough. Don't miss the giver for the gifts. And I think what this does, at least for me, is kind of make me pause and just beg the question for me. What are the pillars of my culture that I've been trusting in? What are the pillars of our culture in the United States that we've been trusting in? I mean, it's it's not the same as it was for the Jewish people. It's not going to be the land and the law and the temple. But might I suggest that the pillars that we've been trusting in for a long, long time in our country are health and with it comfort and safety and wealth and with it comfort and this sense that I got my 401k covered and I'm going to be able to have the things that I enjoy and not just my needs but also my wants and I'm going to trust in my wealth and I may not say it but I live it and finally I really really want my independence my sense of mobility that I can go where I want to go when I want to go and I got my wealth and my health and my independence and God has put his blessing on me and these are demonstrations of God's blessing on me. And could it be that God in this moment has gently kicked those over? Could it be? Could it be that God is trying to get our attention in this moment? That we have, to some degree, mistaken secondary things for the main thing. And while we would never say that we worship those things, we, to some degree, perhaps trust in those things. And could it be that God is knocking over the pillars of the stool such that we would recognize that there's nothing we can ultimately trust in except for God alone. Now, I'm not saying 
that God has orchestrated COVID-19. I'm not saying that at all. And I am not saying that God is pouring down judgment on America for something that America has done. I'm not saying that God is pouring down judgment on a certain group of people because of what they have done. Sadly, there are some people out there in religious circles and Christian circles and non-Christian circles as well who are prognosticating about why this has happened and what God might be doing to judge this group of people or that group of people. And frankly, that's silly. And it makes us look really, really foolish. Please do not do that. That's the last thing that I'm saying. But what I am saying and what I do know is this. The heart has room for only one God. The human heart has room for only one God. And when we speak of trusting ourselves to the Lord in the scriptures, that word trust is very frequently synonymous with the word worship. Stephen is saying, don't trust in anything else less than God. Remove all of the things Get them out if they would get in the way of your true and abiding trust in God. Don't trust in the land or the law or the temple. If it gets in the way of your trust in God, do not trust in health or wealth or independence, nobility. Understand that they are not promised. And the heart really only has room to trust in one God. These things that we really enjoy and that are blessings to us, they're not promised. And they will not make us happy. They're not able to deliver that which they seek to promise to us. And they're never ultimately able to deliver the long lasting joy that we are desiring. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. I might substitute the word joyful there, but who am I to quibble with C.S. Lewis? It's the long history of us saying, could there possibly be something else that will satisfy us? No. Nothing. And so to the extent that the pillars of the stool that some of us have been sitting on are being knocked down, we say, God, bring it on. That would be a good thing. Let me just show you one more thing from this episode it comes at the end of chapter 7 when Stephen is getting his punishment from the Sanhedrin. If you look at verse 54, it's an amazing portrait here. And this is his prayer that we will see in this moment as well. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, all that Stephen had said about their traditions, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There he is. I see him. At this, they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices and they all rushed at once at him. And dragging him, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And a man named Saul approved of their killing. What a portrait. You just heard it, but this is what Stephen is facing as he is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, testifying to Jesus in a disturbing time far beyond one that most of us could ever imagine experiencing, far beyond what we are experiencing today. And as he testifies to the truth of the resurrection of Christ, they are furious. They grind their teeth. He says, I see heaven opening up, and I see one like the Son of Man coming down. And that's a reference to Jesus in his conquering position, that one day Jesus is going to come in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, when Jesus sets the world to rights, and he makes all things new. And he says, I see the divinity of Jesus, fully man and fully God, and he's coming on heaven, and man, he is glorious. And to this they scream louder, and they plug their ears at what he is saying, and they pick up stones large enough, and once again, they are the supreme court of the day. They're able to pick up those stones, and they kill them. And what does Stephen do? He does three things that I want to encourage you to consider doing this week. The first thing is, under pressure, in this disturbing moment, he looks up. He looks up toward Jesus. And he sees that Jesus is way bigger than the stuff he's dealing with right in front of him. And the greatness of Jesus overwhelms any fear that he would have at the moment of death that is right in front of him. He has resurrection faith, which emboldens him to face this possible fear of death and keep going and be unafraid. That's the first thing he does, is he looks up at Jesus. We are wise in this moment to behold Jesus often. How are you beholding Jesus in this moment? How are you imagining him? How are you bringing him to mind? Are you spending time in the Gospels and imagining his beauty extended toward you, his love toward you. And the second thing that he does is he stands firm. Stephen doesn't go anywhere. He stands firm. He says, bring it on. I am standing with God. 
And if you're not willing to stand for something really important, you'll fall for anything. And Stephen says, I'm standing with God. I'm standing with Jesus, and I am not shutting up. I am going to testify even as you have seized me and put me in handcuffs and presented me before the rulers who are able to judge me. I am speaking for truth. I'm standing firm. And then finally, he prays, God, receive my spirit. God, have your way in me. Your will be done in me. I'm all yours, God. I'm all yours, God. And what if this became your prayer this week, your dangerous prayer this week? God, I am all yours. All I want is your will for my life. I give myself to you. Would you have your way in me? Would you give me courage where I don't currently have it? Oh, Jesus, would you help me to stand firm as I see that you will be high and exalted once again, even amidst this suffering. God, I don't want to waste this suffering. Help me to stand firm. I'm all yours. And he will. And he will. I pray for you that you would make that your prayer this week. Perhaps this greater degree of resurrection courage would well up in you that would help you to overcome any fears that you may be facing now. We do these three things. We behold Jesus. We stand firm in what we know to be true. And we pray, God, I give my all to you. So Father, I pray for my friends. Pray for my friends who are watching here today online in their kitchens, in their living rooms. I love them. So grateful for each and every one of them. And I ask God that your mercy would be upon them in a profound way in this disturbing moment. Father, give them courage to stand firm in you. Give us courage when we face suffering. Perhaps we are right now. It could be over any number of different things. We want to redeem these moments. We don't want to waste these moments, God. Suffering is so powerful for forging our character. Not only is it the passageway, pain is the passageway to paradise, but also suffering is the passageway to forging our character today. It's the means by which you give us spiritual muscles. So, Father, would you please help us to run toward you and to look toward you and to stand firm in this moment and to use these moments, to redeem these moments, to remember, God, that there is only one who is worthy of our trust. And as we sit in Christ, as we are enveloped by Christ, as we trust in Christ, there is fullness of joy, both for today and forevermore. We give you all glory in Jesus' name.